Section 1 of Whispering Tunnels This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. Whispering Tunnels by Stephen Bagby. Part 1 For the second time since his arrival in Paris that day, Miles Cresson of New Orleans found that wartime comrades would flee at the mention of a name. There was something so sinister in the way they had stared and made off whenever he uttered it that the American was seized with astonishment. It was not strange, then, that he paid little heed to the carefree students who crowded past on Boulevard St. Michel that August evening in 1923. Cresson watched the gray-blue uniform of Captain Emile de Bray until it had vanished in the crowd, determined that he would demand an explanation should they meet again. For insolence had shown in the officer's small eyes and in his pasty face, as his back had turned in answer to a civil question. And that question concerned the fate of a fellow officer, Jules Chamon. It was mystifying. Debray, an Alsatian, was both oily and ingratiating, and it was because of this that Cresson had disliked him from the first. The three... Cresson, Debray, and Chamon had been artillery students together at Laval de Hon in 1914. Cresson was one of those valiant, impetuous Americans who took up the cause of France in the beginning. He was the wealthy and adventurous scion of an old Louisiana family, with the twinkling black eyes of his ancestors, one of those tall, dark, good-looking chaps one often meets in the Southland. If he had ever held a barrier of reserve between himself and Debray, Cresson did not know the existence of this, so far as Chamon was concerned. They had been the closest of friends, drawn together by interests in common. Jules Chamon reminded one of steel encased in velvet, having the blue eyes and tawny hair of a Viking, and yet the gentle features and intensity of a prophet. Indeed, he and Debray were opposites. They differed as much in appearance as in tendencies, of the sort that had caused the stocky Alsatian to fling away his patrimony over gaming tables a few days before their paths had crossed. Fluency in languages had cemented a bond between Chamon and Miles Cresson, whose accomplishments in music and art were much the same as those of the young Frenchman. The fortunes of war sent them into different regiments before they had quite completed training. Cresson to the defense of Paris, Chamon and Debray to Fort Vaux near Verdun, Letters at first were frequent, but as the war, war on those from Chamon, ceased abruptly, and efforts to locate him failed. Cresson, recovering in a Paris hospital from wounds received a few days before the armistice, discovered that Jules Chamon was missing in records at French army headquarters. Further inquiry at the Invalide disclosed nothing more than the addresses of his nearest relatives, a mother and sister. Neither could be found, nor did anyone seem to know just what had become of them. In Paris, the mansion of the Chaumons was shuttered and dark, while at Lyle Adam, the crippled caretaker of the chateau had seen none of the family since the war began. Cresson put further inquiry aside and began a long cruise on the Mediterranean to regain his health. Upon his return to France, Cresson made a tour of the battlefields near Verdun, where he discovered that Chaumont's name affected French army officers in peculiar fashion. They either turned the subject or walked away when he tried to question them. He gradually became conscious that an invisible wall barred all facts, 
except that with regard to Chaumont's disappearance in 1917, when the German legions overran Fort Vaux. If the attitude of the garrison's commanders had puzzled the American, that of Debray, the last man questioned in Paris, aroused hot resentment. For the stocky Alsatian, perhaps, was best able to clear the mystery, and yet had refused. Cresson pondered over this as he walked slowly up the boulevard, until at length bright squares of light from the terrace of the Café des Trois-Ponts crossed the pavement. He stopped suddenly as a voice from the terrace called his name. He turned to behold a smallish, well-groomed man, wearing a close-cropped mustache, racing after him. The runner was hatless, and his gait endangered his spectacles, which dangled from his waistcoat by a ribbon. A casual observer might have classed him as an American college professor on tour, but to Miles Cresson he was Dr. Arthur Littlejohn of New York, scientist and spook hunter. Dr. Littlejohn, recovering his breath, looked closely at the younger man and frowned. "'If I didn't know better,' he exclaimed, "'I'd say you are uncommonly blue for a resident of the Latin Quarter. You're worried. I'll see you home and try cheering you up in the bargain. Wait here.' When the scientist emerged from the café with his hat, the two hailed a taxicab and rode in silence to a secluded hotel in Montparnasse, a short distance away, where Cresson maintained his quarters. His apartment, in fact, might be better described as a small museum. The walls of the great living room were covered with rare paintings, armor, tapestries, and ancient weapons from the corners of Europe. Dr. Littlejohn sank into the depths of an easy chair, an unlighted cigar between his teeth, noting silently his host's nervousness and lighting a cigarette. Cresson broke the silence with the story of Chaumont's disappearance and the unwillingness of French army circles to discuss it. There's something about all this that is very mysterious, declared Cresson, resting his gaze on a jade clock high above on the mantel. There may be no answer to it, doctor, but if there is, I feel that you are the one man able to find it. The scientist acknowledged the compliment with a quick bow, sinking deeper into the chair with his elbows braced on the arms and the tips of his fingers touching. His eyes alone peering above the gold rims of his spectacles betrayed keen interest. What I have told you, Cresson continued, occurred in Fort Vaux, which lies between Forts Douaumont and Hardimont, in a circle of strongholds defending Verdun. All told, there are thirty-six fortresses, some of them from four to five miles apart. The whole region is a succession of bare, desolate hills, scarred and pitted like the surface of the moon, a labyrinth, honeycombed with death. I can tell you, Doctor, no living man knows the extent of that vast underground network of tunnels and passages linking up the forts. There are layers of these stone arteries which run in every direction, all connected with innumerable flights of stairs. The main tunnels branch off into hundreds of smaller ones which lead to countless great rooms, barrack halls, dungeons, and almost bottomless shafts. Trap doors and inclines descend to the bowels of the earth, and these have doubtless accounted for many of the men that have attempted to explore the tunnels and have never emerged again. Torches, maps, and compasses seem a little use, for the armies of the earth could well be swallowed in the immensity of this maze. Three nights ago, the young man went on, I arrived in the little village of Montcourt, which is about four miles east of Verdun, on the Paris-Metz railway, and just outside of Fort Vaux. Rain was pouring, and the road from the station to the solitary hotel resembled a river of mud, 
The inn had been boarded up and patched in spots where enemy shells had left their marks during the war, and I considered myself lucky in getting a room that was fairly dry. I donned dry clothing, and after a very excellent dinner, I adjourned to the buffet for coffee. There were few persons there, but among these I recognized an old friend, Major Paul Fallais, commander of my battalion on the Aisne. He appeared greatly surprised, but overjoyed to see me. The Major had remained in the Army, and for the past two years had been stationed in Fort Vaux. The gloomy fortress had a depressing effect, he told me, and this he had attempted to offset by habitually strolling into the village of evenings. Good old Fillets simply wouldn't hear to my staying at the inn, insisting that I go to Vaux that night as the guest of the garrison. It was really a short walk to the fort, although the steep incline of the road made the buttressed entrance seem more distant than it actually was. Fillets dropped no hint as to the identity of the commander when he suggested an introduction, and I received quite a surprise when I walked into his headquarters. There I saw a short, active man with prominent eyes and a bristling mustache, riding furiously at a desk. He proved to be Colonel Marcel Dupin, Papa Dupin, as he had been known at Le Valdehon. Papa Dupin leaped from his chair to give me a greeting such as only an ecstatic Frenchman can give. His gestures were many. Zounds, my dear son, he cried, embracing me. So you have come to visit with us. Superb. In the name of the fort, I welcome you. I laughed and told him that it was indeed a happy surprise to find so many of my old comrades in one spot. The evening passed very pleasantly in the garrison club room, where the younger officers crowded around after dinner, asking eager questions about Paris, particularly the Folies, Bourgeois, Montmartre, and the Bois. All seemed suffering from the monotony of garrison life, and eager to talk on any other subject. Major Fillets at Bedtime asked permission to conduct me to my quarters, and together we started along the corridor to a distant wing in the parapets. Above the echo of our footfalls, a faraway sawing, as of wind in the thick foliage of trees, intermittent and long drawn out, sounded in my ears as we continued. When I asked Fillets about it, he started perceptibly. "'It is the whisper of the tunnels, my friend,' he told me in a low tone. Fillets, I noticed, seemed trying to pierce the gloom ahead. His eyes were staring as if momentarily expecting something to appear in the corridor. But the next minute he had recovered himself. La, it is nothing, only the wind. The major added with a shrug. Some, let us go on. He led the way, but my curiosity rose to such extent by the time we reached the guest chamber that I asked him point blank about the mysterious whisper. His reluctance to talk of it was plainly apparent. When we hear the whisper, someone dies, he explained. That is what the troopers of the garrison say, but mind you, these fellows are a superstitious lot. The sound has been heard only since the war, and it is audible only at night. I myself believe it is only the wind playing in some breach in the passages. Mate, when the enemy shells destroy the portion of her, do not let it trouble you. The major changed the subject, chatted for a few minutes, then bade me good night. The guest chamber proved to be a large, irregular room, built into the grim, dingy stone. It was neatly furnished, however, and very comfortable, with its rugs and the log fire blazing in the great fireplace. There is considerable chill in the air of the hill country in August, and the warmth of the flames was very pleasant in that atmosphere of damp rock. 
The room was so large that the rays of the lamp failed to penetrate the black shadows of the opposite corners and walls. I took up the lamp and made an inspection of the chamber. In the corner farthest away from the fireplace, dark red curtains covered the doorway of an anteroom, which I dimly discovered was shaped like a pepper box. As I peered through the parted curtains, it seemed that I again heard the long-drawn whisper rise and die out. I listened intently, but it did not come again. I returned to the fireplace, convinced that my imagination had deceived me. Somehow a feeling of depression assailed me from the moment Major Fillets stepped from the door. Try as I would, I could not rid myself of a gloomy foreboding, a brooding apprehension that left me cold and tensed. I fell to wondering over the lives of the men whose calling forced them to stay in this gloomy fortress for years. And in my heart I pitied them. I finally arose from my chair facing the log fire and locked the door. I next extinguished the light and climbed into bed. I must have been asleep for an hour, I think, when I awoke. Shadows were scurrying everywhere in the dim light of the fire, and the whisper of the tunnels, now loud and ominous, seemed hovering in the corridor just outside the door of my room. I tell you, I fell to trembling violently when I felt a rush of ice-cold air from the corridor as the locked door swung open on noiseless hinges. Something was coming through that door, something I could not see. My heart thumped, as if trying to leap from my chest. I tried to cry out, but the sound stuck in my throat. I was powerless to move. My limbs seemed paralyzed. In some manner, I say, I sensed the presence of some malignant person who had entered the room. I could feel it coming closer by inches as I lay there waiting. The glow of the fire dimmed suddenly and then went out altogether, leaving the chamber in inky blackness. A sound like the whirring of many bats seemed everywhere, filling both the corridor and the chamber where it seemed that a gray, shapeless mass was slowly changing outline and moving in the direction of my bed. I had just enough strength to pull the covers over my head in a frantic effort to shut out the sight, but no sooner had I done so than something akin to a chilling blast tore back the bedclothes. In terror, I perceived that something, a glow with a pale, phosphorescent fire, was hovering over me. It took definite outline, and then I saw the face of Jules Chamon. It bore the pallor of death, but his large eyes seemed to light with a gleaming, burning expression of one who had borne the suffering of the damned as they peered beneath the rim of a trench helmet. His uniform was that of an artillery captain, and his boots trod the floor noiselessly as he passed from my bedside toward the fireplace, and then to the wall a short distance to the right. When his hand touched the stone, a heavy block loosened and fell crashing to the flags. His arm groped the hollow space left in the wall, but he shook his head sadly and moved away, circling the chamber. My fears left me, for I was sure that Jules was in some trouble and needed my help. I rose from bed and followed him to the anteroom, but as I stood between the parted curtains, he turned and sank through the stone floor. Panic seized me, for now I was convinced that I had seen an apparition. I leaped across the chamber in an effort to escape, but as I reached the door it closed with a bang. I saw the key turn and heard the lock snap to, by what means I do not know. Again I heard the whisper. A great black mass was barring my path a foot away and gazing at me fixedly with eyes that were living balls of flame. A horde of soft, flopping things struck against my body and face, and two steely tentacles shot out from the mass and seized me by the throat, choking my head backward. 
I found myself gazing into the most horrible human face I have ever seen. Huge, fat, loathsome, with long fangs and its hideous yawning mouth, and its forehead beaded with greasy, fetid perspiration. I struck the thing's face again and again, and in a desperate struggle, tore my body free. End of section one.